to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software and production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Quintessence, or Quintessence Ox on Twitter. Today, we're going to be discussing the DevSecOps cultural transformation, both where we're at and where we want to be. We are joined today by our guest, Brad Lotsky, a system and security administrator at Craigslist. Brad has been working in security since 1999 and has worked with PCI DSS, ISMA, HIPAA, SOX, and GDPR compliance programs, as well as being active in the observability and Perl communities. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Awesome. So to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your perspective on the DevSecOps cultural transformation? I've been doing security for a long time. Back in 1999, I had one of my personal servers uh, rooted by um, some script kiddies three times, and I kind of wound up accidentally being involved in security in every organization uh, since then. What I've seen is security going from not existing in organizations at all to just you know being a guy who happens to know things about security who you know does the whole security thing to it being seen as maybe like a hall monitor where we just tell people what they can't do those organizations also tend to view security as a cost center where we're just you know they're paying people to sit around and tell their other employees not to do things things progressed and security became almost invisible unless something went wrong and then you know an attack happens or there, there's um, some ransomware or something like that and everyone's panicking and suddenly security becomes visible, but the rest of the year, security doesn't exist. And and that was really the best we could hope for for quite some time. Recently, we've started to see security or uh, teams get seats at the table during uh, design discussions around products, services, um, processes, even policies and things like that in organizations. And it's exciting to see the DevSecOps stuff where security professionals are becoming more involved in the actual development of some of these projects and processes. They're not just there for the design and then um, disappear. My hope is we'll get to a point where you know security teams can actually be seen as a value add to an organization rather than being seen as a cost center. I mean, I hope for that too, because I think especially with the increase in incidents and things that we see, at least on the non-security side of things that are happening it's becoming more and more obvious that proactive is is the best way to move forward. And relevant to how we're kind of integrating and moving forward, what are some myths or misconceptions you've encountered as people try and integrate security into their team flows and, and practices? One of the first things that strikes me as kind of a myth or misconception is um, this kind of uh, approach when organizations get serious about security and then all of a sudden um, they start looking at all these, you know, best practices in the industry, right? And there's a ton of best practice lists you can you can pull up, and they go, you know what? We're going to do security better than anyone, so let's do all of the best practices. And there's a just a lack of connection between the what those best practices are designed for and the organization and the business itself. And so you wind up in a situation where the most common example I give people is password policies, where you have short-lived uh, passwords with high-complexity rules that store a number of passwords for a long period of time, and you can't reuse passwords in, you know, this, you know, in, in a long period of time. And you have password lockout, so you can only get three tries, and then you're locked out of your account, and you're locked out for 30 minutes. I actually saw a researcher writing his password in Sharpie 
on his laptop because he could never remember it because it changed so frequently. So he just had passwords and he would cross them out and rewrite them. So that when you get into those kinds of situations where you're like applying all of the security best practices without understanding the impacts that it's having on the organization and on the people, that could be counterproductive to say the least. Those who can't see me, I'm visibly cringing at the thought of someone writing their password in Sharpie on their laptop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh... That one was that one was special, not just a post-it note, because he said he tried post-it notes and they fell off. So he started writing in a Sharpie on, on the laptop. Oh. The other misconception that I've seen a lot is that technical solutions are always the answer. And I've seen this on pretty much every technical team that I've been on. It's like, we have a human, we have a problem with process. Let's solve it with more technology. A lot of times, the first step to solving those problems is is having conversations with people that are involved with stakeholders, with, with users in, in your organization, with users outside of your organization that are using your products, just having some sort of, you know, good communication channels rather than just going, okay, well, they're doing this. So let's add in a new rule to our firewall or add in a new rule to our uh, intrusion prevention system to prevent this from happening. Usually that conversation will spark something that adds value to the company. Gotcha. And that... Makes sense. So kind of tying it into how things are are working at these companies, especially since most are not yet successfully culturally transformed, we'll say, what is your experience for how these teams and by these teams, I mean, security, infosec teams, as well as, you know, development operations, etc, how they're working together now, how the gears aren't entirely meshing and how that's moving to kind of explain why we're looking at this transformation in the first place. Sure. I think one of the bigger failings that we have is, and I think DevSecOps is addressing this, is that security has always been a separate piece of the organization. I mentioned during the transformation that you know security eventually gets a seat at the table and they're involved in design discussions, but then they're, they disappear and it, they only get called in again when something breaks. Um, and a lot of times their input is, it, they have no way to guarantee that their input is being actually placed into the products and the processes and the services. And that can be dangerous um, because if you end up inviting security professionals into a design discussion and you leave with an, you know, agreeing that this is a good design, you both walk away to your separate areas. And meanwhile, development decides, well, we can't do part B of this because we don't have, you know, support for it in the, in the organization, or we don't have the technology that fits in that hole. And then it gets to operations and operations decides, well, that doesn't really fit the way we work. So we're going to re-engineer some of this stuff. Meanwhile, security is de- designing their defensive strategy against that design. So by the time you end up shipping something, the reality doesn't match the expectations that the security team had. So the security team has built, you know, potentially defenses and insight based on those designs. And now you don't have that in reality. So that assurance of that safety that the security team was able to give to the development and operations team is no longer there. And the assurance of the design is no longer present for the security team. So you wind up with potentially a false sense of security where you think everything is going according to plan and you're monitoring the right things, but it turns out that, you know, there's nothing going across that that particular event stream because somebody ditched that that idea of sending that particular event that would notify the security team of a, a potential, you know, let's say password stuffing attack or something. 
Yeah. And I did want to, just because I think especially those of our listeners who aren't in InfoSec maybe aren't aware of what goes into a defensive strategy. And you mentioned that security really relies on their expectation to be roughly met, right? So that they can build this defensive strategy. Can you just talk a little bit about what that actually means? Like building that defensive strategy, what does that mean to kind of context set? An example might be, um, let's say you're designing something underneath GDPR and you need to protect personal information. And so security might sit down with you and say, okay, let's build this uh, personal information API where um, we'll send you back a token so you can store it anywhere in the organization. Um, And that token will give you the key to be able to unlock the personal data, but we're going to keep all the personal data over here in this protected database. And then what might happen is for, let's say, convenience sake, maybe that API isn't moving as fast as development would like. So they, they are fearing a performance impact to the users. So they implement a caching layer for that personal information inside of the, um, you know, let's say untrusted zone um, where they're caching that personal data and they don't set any TTLs or they set long TTLs that aren't in compliance with the, the actual GDPR policy that the organization has agreed on. You, you get into that situation where you have multiple sets of the data and one set is very protected and is following the rules. But if that company were to be audited and that second caching layer were to be discovered, it could potentially open up the, the organization to um, you know a legal issue. That's just you know one example of where if design doesn't match with reality and there's not that communication between the, the two pieces of the organization, you can actually be you know, subjecting the business to more risk. Thank you. And that makes a lot of sense. And we kind of talked about, or you just talked about it a bit uh, when you were talking about the design being left out of the conversation. But let's talk about a little bit about the points of friction that can happen. So you mentioned one where when the design falls out of sync, but what are some other points of friction that happens between security and the other the development operations teams when things fall out of sync like this? From the security perspective, um, as an infosec professional inside of an organization, uh, some things that that you know have been issues are primarily communication based. When security has an issue that needs to be addressed quickly, it's very difficult to get the right people to take that thing seriously. There there tends to be a little bit of knowledge about security in the general population. Let's just say technical people leave management out of it, right? So there, there's generally most web developers are aware of cross-site scripting and cross-site request forgery and SQL injections and things like that. And but security professionals actually that's the their currency in which they they operate. And so I've been in conversations with people where I've said, hey, look, there's a cross-site request forgery attack on this login page. We need to address it. And the technical person goes, that's just an academic thing. It's all theoretical. Like, yeah, you can do that, but it's got no actual, you know, security value to fix this because it's just a theoretical attack. And then it becomes a security professional's responsibility to demonstrate to that individual or to to that organization that this is something that needs to be taken seriously. Again, that can be very difficult in an organization where security is seen as a cost center because in those types of situations, security doesn't have the ability to say, look, we have years of experience and we're saying this is a big deal and it needs to be fixed. You should listen to us. Because on the other side, you have a developer. And now the developer is seen as an asset to the company. They're adding value. They're creating product. And the developer is saying, no, it's just a theoretical thing. It's one of those play attacks. These guys, they're, they're losing their mind. 
So then it be, would become the security pra- practitioner's job to have to actually take their time out of their day to build out the proof of concept exploit and demonstrate that exploit successfully to the organization in some way. And that takes away time from actually solving the problem. And that can be tricky, especially if you have complex apps, complex uh, services, where a security professional can, can really point out, hey, this is a problem. I know this is a problem. But patching that problem, you know, patching that bug, patching the, the cross-site request forgery, they may not know how to do that inside of your code base with your, the assumptions that you have baked into your front end and where you're loading JavaScript from and where you expect how the front end actually works. You, I know I was certainly overwhelmed with that in, in previous positions, like being able to demonstrate, hey, this is, this is not good. And at the same time, not knowing how to fix it because of a complex code base that had a lot of assumptions baked in. That can be incredibly frustrating when you're attempting as a security professional to do what you're being paid for and say, hey, this is a problem here. And people are like, yeah, don't listen to him. It's not a problem. Or um, the organization just turns a blind eye to it. So that's probably the biggest source of friction, I think, as a security professional I faced in my career is just being able to say, hey, this is a problem without sounding like I'm crying wolf. And then understanding the sense of responsibility on my side of the table for raising that red flag and saying, hey, something needs to needs to change because there is a cost to stopping development and addressing a cross-site request forgery. You're pulling how many devs off of their projects to fix this problem. Uh, so you can't just wave that flag anytime you run a scan and you find a, a bug because not all those bugs are actually actionable. So that friction between like, how does security demonstrate that they're not going to cry wolf? And at the same time, when there is a problem, and when you first start down this road, you may find a lot of problems. So it may sound like the security organization is crying wolf, but really there's a lot of technical debt that hasn't been addressed. And it'll take some time and there will be a lot of findings until you can get to kind of a more sane pattern with your uh, security problems, hopefully. Right. And you did touch on two things that I that I wanted to ask about. And one was when you were talking about, you know, cross-site skyscraping being more theoretical than applied, at least in perspective, right? Someone's perception, rather. Are there ideas that you have for people outside of security to improve their security posture? I know when I did some some reading, I came across like capture the flag games and such. But the idea that I'm kind of asking from is for people who are not InfoSec to become not knowledgeable enough to do damage, but mm-hmm. but knowledgeable enough to have a conversation um, with you or with their security teams. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of really great infosec resources out there. If you search Google for for infosec, you'll find a bunch of stuff. I've been doing this for a long time, and so I, I'm a fan of following uh, Bruce Sneer, uh, Richard Baitlick are two of the guys that I followed uh, pretty closely early on in my career, um, and they they deal with you know thinking more in a um, in a security mindset. And that, that's one of the things that um, when I ran the security team and we had devs and sysadmins come in with no experience, it was one of the things that I wanted to get them into was looking at the security mindset. So not necessarily, you know, learning how to weaponize an XSS or cross-site request forgery, but more understanding that the way that you approach your product as a developer is very specific and very efficient. You're looking at your project and your product is, you know, you have a series of tasks that you need to accomplish for you know, the customer to achieve a goal. And you're inside of that box the whole time. And the world is much larger than that box. And that's the box that the security professional has to look at, which is not only how did the developer 
decide to utilize, you know, this series of web forms to get to this submission form submission process. But what didn't they think of? And that's like the unknown unknowns to most uh, developers. So um, I would look at developing that security mindset. Um, Bruce Neer has a, a book. Um, has a, he's got a few books on this on this topic, and uh, there's a lot of really interesting um, coursework and 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 talks in this area. I know there was a a talk that was done at Black Hat some years ago about um, an infosec program in the U.S. Navy where the um, the final exam was to write out pi to a certain number of digits, something that would be completely, for most people, unable to be done from memory. And that was the final exam. And the, the, the way that the whole course was designed was to get people into that mindset of defeating all these basic assumptions in your environment so that you can sneak in that cheat sheet that has pi to you know 100 digits so that you can ace the final exam. And that's the kind of thing that you need to kind of exercise and, and develop is more that state of mind, more so than necessarily a practical, you know, attack or something like that. And related a little bit to the other thing I wanted to ask you about, where you talked about security being perceived as a cost center instead of a value or a value add or something that improves, you know, the overall, I'll even say wealth of the company, right? Because people have users will have more trust, right? So I want to know your thoughts on how to start to shift that perspective of security so that they're viewed as doing the value that they are, right? Instead of as a cost. So this may be different for other people, but I can only speak from my experience. And unfortunately, I've found that that onus falls entirely on the security professionals to to prove their value. And so the, the best way to do that is to become more active in you know the design process in these new products new 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 services if you can get involved in sprints you know to sit down at at a user story meeting or something like that in in the agile process to to hear what people are asking about just to to kind of find where where the the problems are and identify sources of friction for your developers for your engineers for your management for your customers and try to solve them and solve them in a secure way so that when somebody has a problem and is stuck on something, instead of just going off on their own, they have this like thing in the back of their head going, well, Bob from InfoSec, the last time we, we came across a problem we didn't want to solve, he came up with a solution and we really liked it. Let's reach out to him. And as the organization, if you're looking to, to kind of change this um, behavior, there's the, the concept of like a security sentinel or a security advocate where someone from the security team will go and spend time on the dev and the ops teams. And I think it's also as important to have some of those ops and dev people rotate into the security team and spend some time there learning kind of the security mindset, because it's not something that you can learn inside of a sprint or in, inside of Scrum. You can't really get into that like out-of-the-box thinking when you're looking to you know produce a minimal viable product or you know to ship your bug fixes or fix ship new features. You don't always have time to kind of step back and think about those larger things. So rotating into a security team could be a really good way for a developer to go, okay, let me spend a little bit of time here, maybe spend a week or two in the security team just learning about you know security in general and then take a week of just like taking what I've learned and applying that to the last feature that I shipped and seeing where I can improve it. And then when that person goes back into their team, 
you know, they'll, they'll have a, hopefully a merge request or pull request for that, you know, last product they ship that shows, you know, this new, you know, concept that they've come up with this new secure coding pattern that they've come up with that they can share with their team members. And there might be a really interesting conversation that they have completely separate from the security organization about that, the way that that developer attacked it or, you know, learned how to use cross-site scripting to inject code from an outside, you know, network and, you know, then modify cookies or something. So it's kind of fun. Um, I think we all have that, like, you know, heist is the the heist and the, the, the big theft kind of things are kind of fun. So when you learn these, these types of concepts, they tend to be infectious. So having the rotation not just out of security, but into security, I think is a really good way for organizations to breed a better relationship between security and the rest of the organization. That's awesome. We're going to do a quick pivot here because we wanted to make some time and space to have a conversation about burnout in the InfoSec community. So I will actually give you the space to level set on, on your concerns right, that you wanted to address. That, that was one of the things that, that I wanted to make sure I used my voice to talk about was the, the fact that if you look at burnout rates and mental health disorders up to and including suicide, um, they're, they're abnormally higher in, this, in the InfoSec community uh, than in most of the rest of IT. And a lot of that has to do with that old mindset of security as a cost center, of security professionals just being viewed as the people that always say no, um, of us being invisible until there's a big problem. Um, because during that invisible time, security professionals are probably freaking out because they know what's coming. Um, they've identified problems, but because they're invisible to the organization and they've been on the soapbox talking about how they need to solve these problems, I think the organizations gen- generally tend to almost grow immune to security dissent to things that they're doing or or when security does say something, it's again, going back to crying wolf. And so it falls in deaf ears. And so the security professionals are aware of some of the attack surfaces that the business is choosing to actively ignore. So they're already sweating and then something does happen. And a lot of times, at least in my experience, the conversation turns back to, I've had C-level executives say to me, we paid you to protect us from this. Why did this happen? We're paying you to do this. Who should we fire? And you look back at the emails you have in your <laughs> your sent folder of all of these problems, like saying just screaming into the void, asking for someone to help, and and no one did. That can take a toll. It can manifest as a in burnout. Um, if you don't have good support structure around you, and you spiral in the, those cases, um, there have been a lot of cases of suicide or self harm in, in the infosec community, and so. You know, what I want to say is if you find yourself as an infosec professional in a position where you feel anxious all the time, that's not normal. And you should not get used to that. And you should not wear that as your red badge of courage that you deal well with stress and you're always anxious and that's just your state, but you're highly focused. It manifested for me in literal tunnel vision. I was, you know, even when I wasn't working, when I was driving my car, I noticed something was off. And that something was, I remember driving when I was younger and being able to see everything on the road. During that stress, I couldn't see anything except for what was directly in front of me. So there were literal physical physical manifestations of the fight flight mentality that were permeating through my whole life. And um, 
maybe not a nice person to talk to. <laughs> I wasn't good company. And so I, I think it's important to identify that in yourself. And um, if you're a team lead or, or a manager to identify that in, in your colleagues and be there for them to say, hey, what do you need? Take time off if you need to take time off. Step away from things. Um, you are not your job. You are not the product of your work. You are yourself. And you know, if you do feel that constant feeling of anxiety, reach out to a mental health professional. I did, and it changed my life for the better. And I wish I would have done that sooner. It probably would have saved me a lot of pain and suffering. I wanted to make sure we acknowledge that in, in this conversation because a lot of organizations are starting to get into the place where they want to incorporate security more in a positive way into the organization. But I do know that there's a lot of organizations where that's not the case. And there are people that are probably suffering right now in InfoSec that are, you know, just feel like that's part of what their job description is. And they're shouldering that all by themselves. And uh, I thought it was my job responsibility. I thought I needed to do that. And uh, I was wrong. It was a very expensive mistake for me not to reach out to someone sooner. Thank you for sharing that. And just to echo a little bit, if you find yourself in a team or a company that you're starting to manifest some of the anxiety system, symptoms of self-harm and, and suicide and the things that he's discussing right now, please make sure that you do reach out to someone, reach out to your support system. Sometimes reaching directly out to therapy as a first jump is really a big leap to make. So reach out to your support system and your friends and let people know that you really, you need a little bit of extra help or, and to, to those support systems, make sure you're looking out for your friends, especially if you know they're in high stress positions, even if they're not voicing that they're struggling right now, because they could later and it will open the door for them to reach out to you when, when things maybe start to go awry. Um, I just wanted to thank you again, Brad, for sharing that with us. And just to close out, if you wanted to look at Brad's personal website that has his book and his materials and his blog with his thoughts, it's edgeofsanity.net. We also have in our resources the DevSecOps guide that he contributed to with us. And thank you so much for that. And that will be in the notes as well. We're also going to list the information for some of the authors and things that he, he mentioned so that you know where to look for them. And this will be a huge tone shift, and I acknowledge, <laughs> but there are two questions that we always ask at the end of every episode, and are you ready for that? Sure thing. Okay. What is one thing you wish you had known sooner about DevSecOps or security? I think the, the one thing that I wish I would have known sooner is that it's really simple to have a good security posture in your organization, and probably the, the one simplest thing you can do is keep your software up to date. Awesome. And is there... Is there anything about DevSecOps or security you're glad that we did not ask you about today? I, I really can't think of anything. No. Um. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us, Brad. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. And this is Quintessence wishing you an uneventful day. That's it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittolimit.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittolimit using the number two. That's pageittolimit with the number two. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, uneventful days are beautiful days. Beautiful days.